Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the victory accomplished and the victory extended and the promises that flow out from that victory. Strengthen us now so that we will rise. Strengthen us from your word. Strengthen us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Our passage this morning is Isaiah 40, verses 27 through 31. A familiar passage, at least in part. Let's read it. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Last weekend with uh, some of you, I participated in a volleyball tournament organized by Ernie. Um, We came out, we were supposed to start at 8, we started a little later, but we played at 9, and at 10, and at 11, and we played all the way to about 2 o'clock, and that's when my team uh, got out of the running. Um, and, And I love volleyball, and I consider myself as in pretty good shape. But one of the things I noticed as the tournament went longer and longer is we seemed to start slowing down. (laughs) There weren't as many epic um, dives and chases. I wasn't tired of volleyball, but I was tired. I was just plain tired. The spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak. And as... Kyle mentioned, as I look around and I look at myself, I see a lot of weary saints. Exhaustion is not just something that happens on the volleyball court, a problem we face in the fourth hour of the tournament. It's something we face in the home as we raise the fourth child, or the third or the fifth, you know, I'm not hating on on fourthborns. It's something we face in the fourth year of a chronic illness. It's something we face when your brother or sister sins against you for the 444th time. And yes, that does still fall under 70 times 7. When a trial is extended, it changes. It's not just quantitatively more, more of the same. It's qualitatively different. A long trial is different because we are different. The boxer in the ring 
in the first round is not the same boxer in round 12 because we get tired and we need strength. Growing weary doesn't mean you are in sin, but it does mean you are in danger. Now hear that carefully. Growing weary doesn't mean you are in sin. It may mean the opposite, but it does mean you are in danger. Tired Christians are in danger of becoming slack in our fight against sin. Tired Christians get irritable and bitter and we struggle to bear with the flaws and failures and foolishness of others. And this is why we have Paul giving us a repeated call throughout his letters, do not grow weary in doing good. Or the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 3 says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The same terms And a little later in Hebrews 12, he says, Therefore, lift up drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Getting tired is dangerous. Getting tired can make us slow and weak and sometimes lazy and desperate. We get tired and we need strength. Most of us, most of us. There are some saints in the room, no doubt, who are a little too young to understand weariness. I appreciate that. Um, The first time I was at Rockport 20 years ago, when I was 20, I also did not need sleep. And um, I couldn't understand the the slowness and timidity of some older folks. This shouldn't make us sneering or cynical about the enthusiasm and energy of the young. Their strength is real. And it should be celebrated. John, in 1 John, he says, I write to you young men because you are strong and the Word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. The strength of youth is real, but it is limited. Their strength also, young people, kids, your strength also will run out. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. It's right in the middle of our passage today. This passage speaks to all of us because we all need strength. We all need more strength. And the powerful encouragement here in Isaiah 40, is that there is strength to be had. Look at verse 29. Isaiah 40, verse 29. He, God, gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, He increases strength. Or a little later, verse 31, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So who does this power come to? Who does this strength come to? They who wait for the Lord. 
So that's what we are looking to do. We want to know what it means to wait for the Lord. And central to that idea, we find the key in how the writer, how Isaiah responds to the voice of doubt in verse 27. The doubter says, My way is hidden from the Lord. And the response is, Haven't you known? Haven't you heard? I know you have. He's reminding them of things they know. And so as we are called to wait on the Lord, we are reminded of things we know. We wait on the Lord by remembering. We wait on the Lord by remembering that our sight is limited. We wait on the Lord by remembering that our God is unlimited. And we wait on the Lord by remembering that our God has a plan. So let's look at those three things here in Isaiah. First, remember that your sight is limited. Verse 27 says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Why do we say things like this? We say them because it seems like my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God. Now, it's hard to date the different prophecies in Isaiah because he writes over the span of four kings, four different kings in Judah, probably equates to a span of 50 to 60 years. But observing that the book of Isaiah does seem to preserve the general chronological flow in recording these prophecies, chapter 40 finds us probably at least halfway through the 29-year reign of Hezekiah. After the Lord's miraculous deliverance from Assyria, when Assyria was about to completely demolish Jerusalem, and after Hezekiah's miraculous extend, God miraculously extending his life by 15 years. At one level, you would expect that this would be the place where you would have not this cry of despair, but a cry of celebration. Hezekiah was generally a good king. This is a high point in Israel, in Judah. If you look at 2 Kings 18, you see a little bit of this story, kind of a summary of, of Hezekiah. 2 Kings 18, verse 3-7. through 7. It says of Hezekiah, And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings in Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him but kept the commandment that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him wherever he went out. He prospered. He prospered. This is a time of prosperity. We we learn from 
uh, Chronicles, Second Chronicles, that he had also cleansed the temple, restored the priestly services that, that his father Ahaz had stopped, and reinstated the Passover. And it was such a glorious celebration of the Passover that it was remembered from, from one point of view, this looks like a new golden age of Israel. But we look a little deeper and we're reminded that good laws and good leaders do not make good hearts. Hezekiah is a huge improvement on Ahaz. But the people are still chasing idols. The people are still looking to Egypt for their salvation. The people have forgotten the Lord. Looking at Isaiah 43... God says, this indictment, I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. And so because of this, when when Assyria swept through Israel and carried them away into captivity, the northern kingdom, God let them come all the way up to Jerusalem's doorstep before turning them back. Judah was preserved, but barely. So when Hezekiah calls Isaiah in to pray for deliverance, he says, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. There's just a remnant. We're hanging on. Look at Isaiah 42.22. Here's how they are described. This is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to save, restore. And verse 24, Who gave up Jacob to the looters and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? In whose ways they would not walk and whose law they would not obey. The deliverance of Isaiah 37, the deliverance from Assyria, it was glorious. But the context of it was devastating. The reason Isaiah 40, our our chapter, starts out with the words, comfort, comfort my people, is because... They needed that word of comfort. God's people needed in their ears, as we so often do, what they weren't able to get through their eyes. And we need this same thing. Our eyes tell us many things. And some of them are just plain wrong. We know that particularly in a day of deep fakes and optical illusions. Memory contamination, prejudice, perspective. Sometimes what you thought you saw wasn't what happened. But many of the things we see are right insofar as they go. Don't let anybody use a verse like 31 and say Christians never get weary. If they didn't, there would be nobody for God to, in verse 29, to give power to. Because He gives power to who? The faint, the weary. We do get weary. That is something your eyes see. And it's real. 
But we can acknowledge what our eyes see. The world is gone crazy, gone off, off its rockers. We can acknowledge what our eyes see without accepting what they conclude. Your trauma may be deep, but it does not define you. Our nation may be off, it, off the rails, but it is not out of God's reach. Our way may be hard, but it is not hidden from the Lord. The problem is not so much that what we see is incorrect, but that what we see is incomplete. When God rebukes His people, for instance, in Isaiah 8, Isaiah 8, 12-13 says something like, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord your God you shall regard as holy. Him you shall fear. Him you shall dread. When God does that, He's not saying conspiracies aren't real. He's saying they don't matter. Not near as much as we think they do. So one of the first steps we take in waiting for the Lord is saying no to the confident assertion of our eyes. We remember that our sight is limited. We're not seeing the whole picture. We wait on the Lord by denying the ultimacy, the finality, the completeness of what we see, of our temporary circumstances, of our present enemies. Second, we wait on the Lord by remembering that our God is unlimited. Our sight is limited. Our God is unlimited. Look at verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the Creator of the ends of the earth. Isaiah meets the discouraged cry in verse 27 with this doctrine-rich confession in verse 28. God is absolutely unlimited. He is unlimited across time. He is unlimited across space. He is unlimited in strength. He is unlimited in wisdom. So what are we afraid of? At what point do we fear there has been or will be a breakdown in God's sovereign control? Are we afraid that our situation is too complex? Or our enemies are too large for God to handle? They're too well established. We are so overmatched. Well, the Lord is the everlasting God, the Creator of the ends of the earth. He is unlimited in power. Of course, especially at church, we would never say something like that. We would never suggest that our problem is too big for God. But some of you are like me, and we develop these ways, habits of reading the circumstances to see if God is in the process of saving us. As if God needed a process. 
You and I need processes. We need to like start something and the next day we do a little more and we, we build on that. And we read that into God. And so, I, 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 I'm needing a new job, let's say. I don't. Um, thank you to my boss. I'm appreciative of where I am. But if you're looking for a new job, you're like, okay, what's God doing to bring this job along to me? And we look for processes like these. Kids, maybe you can appreciate this. Some of you kids are really proud because you can jump pretty far. Right? So maybe you can jump like three feet from this stone post to this stone post. But if somebody asks you to jump like four feet across a ravine, you're going to need a running start, right? God is not like that. God doesn't need a running start for anything. God is not merely like us, but better. He is not merely considerably better and more effective than we are. He is infinitely better and more effective than we are. It's not as if what we might accomplish by three years of engaged political and social and ministerial action, God can shrink down and get that done in three weeks. He doesn't need three weeks. Now, it is true that God uses means. He may raise up a William Wilberforce to labor for years and decades to end slavery, to end the slave trade. He will use you in your role as a Sunday school teacher, as a mother or father, as a deacon, to accomplish many good works. But we we shouldn't confuse God's use of means with His reliance on them. The God who created the world from nothing needs nothing in this world to save you. His deliverance can come out of nowhere, exactly like His creation. Ex nihilo. Out of nothing. Boom. And this lesson should have been fresh in the minds of the people of Judah. Because they had just seen it with the Assyrians. The Assyrians had this massive army. They had swept through. They had taken the fortified cities of Judah after they had already taken out Israel. They were the dominant world power. Some tension with Egypt, but Assyria was the big dog. And they come up to Jerusalem... And they demand their surrender. And Hezekiah at first thinks this is a losing battle. But while they're still far off, he tries to buy them off and say, I'm sorry for rebelling. Here, take a bunch of gold. The Assyrian king says, no. I'm going to come in. I'm going to take you out. We're going to get a new king in there. So he comes up to Jerusalem, surrounds the city. It looks like a hopeless cause. But the people... Hezekiah leads the people to cry out to the Lord. And God, that, uh, that night, comes in 185,000 wiped. 185,000. And among them, Second Chronicles says, were all the mighty warriors and commanders and officers of Assyria. He took out all the leaders. He cut off the head. 
And they go home. That came out of nowhere. Now, if a story like that doesn't remind you and encourage you to wait on the Lord, to pray for your son or your father or your friend, to beg for revival in our nation and revival in your own heart to strengthen you in your weariness. If that doesn't strengthen you, encourage you to ask for the impossible, I don't know what will. Because this reminder that God is unlimited in power is a huge thing in the Scriptures. But He's not just unlimited in power, He's also unlimited in His capacity. And what do I mean by that? Well, perhaps your concern is not that God's not big enough, but that you aren't. That your way is hidden from the Lord because He's got more important things to worry about. And after an exhausting day of holding back nuclear war or uh, propping up an unstable economy, He just wants to prop His feet up. There's a lot of theological problems with that. Um, (laughs) But one of them we notice from this passage, our passage, is that it imagines God to be limited in His capacity. As if He only had the energy or the mental space to handle the really big things. But your God is unlimited in capacity. Look at verse 28, the end of it. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He is not catching up on doing some last minute research to try to figure out a decent solution for this. He's on top of it. He's on top of it on the global scale and He's on top of it in your life. But capacity... I mean, okay, that, that's great, but I mean, Elon Musk has the capacity to give each of us a million dollars. I still don't have my million. Don't know about you. No, we need capacity in something else. Where God also is unlimited in care. Because who in our passage does it say he's caring for? We'll look at verse 29. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. A familiar prophecy in the Scriptures is that a bruised reed he will not break. God cares for the least of these. When Jesus was speaking about God's concern for us, He said God takes care of the grasses of the field. He takes pleasure in that little flower of the grass of the field. Don't you think He cares about you? God cares about the birds and not one sparrow falls from the sky without Him noticing. Don't you think He notices you? Your way is not hidden from the Lord and He cares. Let's move on to the third point which is that we remember, we wait on the Lord by remembering that our God has a plan. 
This is at the core of what it means to wait on the Lord, or wait for the Lord. When in verse 31, those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength, waiting for the Lord means we are looking to Him in hope. Again, reaching back to Isaiah 8, Isaiah, in kind of contrast to the people who are freaking out and saying, conspiracy, conspiracy, we are doomed. Isaiah says, I will wait on the Lord and in Him I will put my hope. So he equates hoping in God with waiting on Him. Now, in this, in the broader context of Isaiah, this is not a nebulous hope. This is not a feeling like, well, maybe God might notice me and maybe might do something. No, in contrast to the doubting heart of verse 27, waiting for the Lord is a firm confidence that He has everything under control. He's working everything according to plan. And this is one of the big themes of Isaiah, which I think could be labeled a a symphony of God's sovereignty. Because you have all these movements. As one nation after another, God says, Israel, I'm going to take care of them. I'm going to bring judgment because of their sin. Moab, I'm going to take care of them too. Syria, yes, I'm going to take care of them and bring judgment. Babylon, going to take care of them. The whole world. And there's all these movements. And underneath, you hear the drumbeat. The drumbeat is saying, God has a plan. God has a plan. God is in control of all of this. We hear this through Isaiah in repeated expressions like Isaiah 2.12 that says, The Lord of hosts has a day. Picking up that idea, a similar phrase, in that day is used 42 times in Isaiah. That's like two-thirds of the time it's, times it's used throughout the whole Scriptures. In that day is used to reference the future of God's people and all the other nations. It represents good things like deliverance and prosperity and it represents bad things, judgment, destruction. In that day refers to near fulfillments that those people would see within their lifetime and eschatological in time fulfillments that God's people are still waiting on. But what unites all of them is this idea that God has a plan. Now maybe that sounds fine for those people there, Isaiah's day, because they got, Isaiah was telling them what the plan was, right? They were getting the inside scoop of what was going to go down. What about us? I'm having a hard time finding comforting details about America in 2023 in my Bible. Or am I? Maybe we're not so far out off from what they, the position they were in. Our, our experience is closer to the experience of Isaiah's audience than we realize. Have any of you read Isaiah recently? It doesn't quite. It's not like quite like getting a peek at God's daily planner. The way God weaves the this symphony of His sovereignty 
is he's blending all these things, the near and the far fulfillments together. One moment he's talking about his servant as the messianic savior, and one moment he's talking about his servant as the people of Israel who he rebukes. One moment he's talking about what he's going to do to the Babylonians in bringing judgment, and the next moment he's talking about actually redeeming them and bringing Babylonians and others from the nations into His people. And they're all intermixed. Biblical prophecy is generally not meant to equip us with the details of God's plan so that we can be like, "Ah, I know it's going to happen next. It's not meant to equip us with the details of the plan, but to assure us that God has one. He has a plan, and yes, it extends all the way to the minutest details of your life. His promises are given to encourage faith, not to eliminate the need for it. Think about it. What do you and I actually need in order to trust God, in order to wait for the Lord? How about this? What makes the difference between your experience on a roller coaster and your experience in violent airplane turbulence? Why is the one, and and for for some of us here, the the roller coaster also has quit being thrilling, but, but what makes the one thrilling and the other terrifying? What makes all the difference is our confidence that one was designed. There's an engineer. There's an architect. Everything is on track. And you're going to slow down and you're going to pull back into the the terminal and be able to get off the ride. Much like a roller coaster in our life, that confidence that there is a plan There it is a designer makes all the difference. Like that roller coaster, what seems out of control and dangerous in your life is just part of the track. The track designed by your heavenly Father for His good purposes and your good. And our job, our job is to stay in our seats. Our job is to wait on the Lord and trust His plan. And His plan is one of abundance. As Pastor Kyle was saying, related to Psalm 23, His plan is one of abundance. It's one that when we get weary, as some of you are feeling, He is meeting you and saying, I'm in control. I've got this. And He is bringing along provision so that you, in your weariness, will mount up on wings like eagles so that you can run even in your weariness and find that He gives you the strength to complete the race and keep the faith. Just like Paul says, I have finished the race, I have run the race, I have kept the faith. And what is waiting for Him? The crown of glory. And so, as we look to God and we remember His plan, that He has a plan, and that He calls us 
to simply wait for Him. We don't just remember it, but then we rest in it. Part of the way He meets us with strength is when we are able to see that He is working His plan, we are able to step back from feeling like we need to work ours. In seeing that He has all the strength, unlimited in His strength, we are able to step back and remember we don't need to be unlimited in strength. We can rest. This is something that God is calling each of His children to remember. And if you are not yet one of His children, if you do not yet know Jesus, this is the first step He calls you to, is to step back from all your efforts, your frantic energies to save yourself. And rest in the work that He has already done to bring salvation to the world. May each one of us, as we reflect on the Lord's unlimited power, His unlimited knowledge, His unlimited wisdom, His unlimited care, come to Jesus and wait for the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the strength that You give Your people. We thank You for the encouragement to know that You are working Your plan. Help us now to live this week ahead of us in the confidence, the confidence of trusting You to do all that is needed in us and to bring us to heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.